Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I want to lead off this morning with heartfelt condolences to the president of the United States, Donald Trump, whose younger brother, Robert, whom the president acknowledged was also his best friend, died this weekend. This is a this is a reminder that we grieve with those who grieve. It is a reminder that um, we grieve the losses of not only our family members, our loved ones, but also our friends. And in this case, um, the president has lost not only his younger brother, but the person who whom he regarded as his best friend. It's a good reminder to us that we, um, although we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. The president stated, it's, it is with a heavy heart uh, that I share that my wonderful brother, Robert, peacefully passed away tonight. He was not just my brother. He was my best friend. He will be greatly missed, but we will meet again. His memory will live on in my heart forever. Robert, I love you. Rest in peace. The only way that a person um, can rest in peace and those who loved that individual um, grieve in in peace, frankly, grieve with this with this knowledge of of a very real hope of meeting again is if they are both people who are covered in Christ, who are saved in Christ, who have a future filled with hope set before them, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. And so it is uh, a faith-filled message from the President of the United States that he is a person who grieves, certainly, you know, acknowledging here the the heaviness of his heart, um, that his brother will be greatly missed, but he's also a person who's acknowledging that he does not grieve without hope, that he has a hope, he has the assurance of uh, of seeing his brother again. Those are important worldview um, acknowledgments, and we ought not miss them, even in a message that is uh, so brief. So we certainly grieve the reality of death. We're going to talk about the reality of death today, um, and we're going to also acknowledge that we are the people of faith who stand in the midst of some very dark days, but we do so as people of light and people who have an ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. So I do think it's important that we uh, we acknowledge that even the most powerful man in the world, the president of the United States, is subject to the reality of mortality. Being the elected leader of the free world does not um, does not insulate Donald Trump nor anybody else from the reality of our fallenness as human beings. And so let us be a people who um, who grieve with him today. And let us also be people of faith who very publicly acknowledge before the world that we know the one who is the hope of our salvation, Jesus the Christ. First up today, I got Dr. Zach Jenkins back. Um, he is. Uh, he and I are going to talk about all things COVID-19. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University tweets as Farm D. That's because he has a doctorate in pharmacy. Farm D hiker. Good place to find him. Zach, welcome back. Good morning. So since we made this um, really long list of things we were going to talk about today, the breaking news apparently is that a saliva-based COVID-19 test has been developed by researchers at Yale with funding from the NBA uh, and the National Basketballers, Basketball Players Association. It was approved on Saturday for emergency use by the FDA. Um, so I just pitched that into the ongoing conversation about uh, about everything else, uh, COVID. What is the lead headline catching your attention in the last week or so related to COVID-19? Well, I, I think uh, what you just highlighted, the new test that's available, underscores something that has been kind of a concern that many of us have had for a little while. We've seen our testing bottleneck over the past several weeks. And as we know, the numbers that we see reported a lot when it comes to deaths, to cases, all those sorts of things are on somewhere between a seven to 14 day lag. Um, But what we started to see is actually that bottlenecking of testing really influenced the results that we're being presented with. So we've seen a big decrease in the number of cases but we also had like a 50% decrease in testing in some areas of the country. So mm-hmm. what that kind of tells us is we don't necessarily know exactly where we stand with all of the cases. And that's kind of the concerning. It'd be different if we had our tests be kind of at a consistent level and the cases drop in light of that. Um, so, so really what this new test is going to allow us to do is hopefully get more people tested more rapidly and uh, thus help us with these bottlenecking issues. The CDC actually implemented a new strategy recently called pool testing, where they basically run multiple batches of tests off of a single machine in order to generate results more efficiently. So that's another thing we've been trying to do lately to to fix some of the bottlenecking. To give you an example locally, um, we've seen like your state testing that that gets done, like your uh, public health departments are putting together. They take sometimes anywhere from three to five days for results to come back. And that's not necessarily the most effective if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. So I heard on the radio, uh, I listen to a lot of radio, that probably doesn't surprise anybody. Um, I heard on the radio that, I mean, I heard someone say, and I'm sorry, I can't, I can't tell you exactly who this person was who was speaking at the time. Um, but he said, ideally, every American would be tested for the coronavirus every day. Now, okay, first of all, is that true, that that would be ideal? And um, I mean, it's clearly not, there's no, there's no feasible way to do that. But um, is that true? Would that be the ideal, from your viewpoint, the ideal state of things? Every American tested every day for the coronavirus? I guess if we're talking about things in a vacuum, sure, that, <laughs> that would be great for about anything out there, right? But, but okay. I don't know if that's a very realistic proposition. And, and obviously, we don't necessarily have all the resources available to even do that if we wanted to. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it should be, it would be great to know, but I don't know how much that would really help us here. Okay. All right. Let's talk about um, asympt- people who are asymptomatic um, to, so they're, they have COVID, but they're asymptomatic. Let's talk about why that is such an interesting group of people. 
So it's been pretty interesting with COVID in general just to see the range of responses. We've had mild cases, we've had our severe cases, and then we've had people who don't really express any symptoms at all, um, at least not visible symptoms. And why they're kind of a, a particular interest right now is there's there's some thought that maybe the fact that they're not expressing symptoms may mean that they're better at generating an immune response to the virus itself. And, and so the, the thought right now, the theory, is that they may have had more exposure to other kinds of coronaviruses before, and so kind of almost had sort of like this innate immunity to this virus and could therefore respond better. And so when you consider the fact that about 40% of all cases that we talk about are asymptomatic, it does make you question, could they be a source down the road for some possible um, ability to fight the virus? Like, could we actually take some of their antibodies, use them in other people, that sort of thing? Okay, which leads us to a conversation about the antibodies. I, I, how long? And we maybe we don't know the answer to this question yet, which is okay. I think that the fact that we continue to learn things is important here. Um, are we now at the stage where we can look at people who had the coronavirus very early on and determine whether or not that immunity lasts, or whether or not I don't know how does antibodies work? Like, do you get to the place where maybe you don't have any anymore? So the, the way the antibodies typically work is you, in response to an, inf an infection, you really mount up sort of like your innate re immune response where you have these uh, antibodies generated to immediately fight whatever you're infected with. What your body does do, though, is it trains some of your white blood cells called B cells um, to produce more antibodies downstream. Over time, your antibody levels will drop after any infection. But your B cells that have been kind of trained to those specific types of viruses or bacteria will actually stay around in your body for a long period of time. And so the real question kind of becomes how long do those B cells stay around um, for any given virus that we're talking about? Because that would imply, or I guess it would directly affect how uh, long immunity would last. So when you think about this case, what we know so far is at least we think you're talking at, at the very minimum months, but people are starting to become hopeful maybe longer than months for that immunity to last. Part of it is contingent on how quickly that virus does change over time. All right. And then I want to have a conversation when we come back about masks and uh, all the varieties of masks and which masks maybe you are thinking are better for us to wear than other masks. Um, and then I definitely want to talk about the conversation related to mental health. So, uh, Dr. Zach Jenkins is going to be here um, for the next segment, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something deeper that the world can't destroy. Smile when you think you can. All right, the headlines related to the coronavirus or COVID-19 uh, come fast, and so we really appreciate the opportunity to visit each week with Dr. Zach Jenkins Um and so, Zach, let's talk about um, the problem with masks. We're now all very dutifully wearing masks, but apparently some of us are wearing the wrong kind. Yeah, so there's been a lot of uh, information coming out in recent weeks about kinds of masks that are more effective than others. And so that's been kind of interesting. Uh, you know, net, net gaiters are one example. I actually like net, net gaiters, and I was like, oh, that would be really nice to use because they're pretty practical. You just pull them up when you need them. You put them down when you don't need them. Um, but evidence is starting to actually show that the material that they're made out of, which is usually like a microfleece of some sort, 
they end up basically dispersing the droplets that you make further. They make them smaller and they go farther. So they're not so effective to wear as that single layer. If you're going to wear a net gaiter, it's pretty much recommended that you would actually double it over so it would prevent that from really spreading as far, especially if it makes the smaller particles. But in All general, right, so the can I tell you what our trick? Them. Can I tell you what our net gator trick is? What's that? So we put little Velcro on the back of our little like those things that are like coffee filters but aren't, and we created that as our second layer. When you pull your net gator up, that's actually what's over your nose and mouth. I have and, no idea if it's effective, be... but it's so much more <laughs> it's comfortable than wearing the thing that goes over the ears. Oh, yeah. So, so that would actually be a much better way, I think, to use a neck gaiters if you had some kind of extra layer in there. Um, but that's that's an example, though, some of the things we've seen. The other one that's been kind of coming out lately are the masks with vents. Mm-hmm. The vents themselves, because they're uh, not necessarily very effectively filtered, sometimes are allowing those droplets to come out, depending on the kind of mask that you get. So... Be careful, I would say, with the vented masks because some of them you can't necessarily trust that they aren't preventing those droplets from spreading still. All right. We're going to all do better and we're going to get better and better at this. All right. Let's talk about statins. I, this, was kind of, uh, this was kind of good news on the, on the cardiovascular front. Yeah. So anyone that takes a statin, which is something that we would take to lower cholesterol like uh, Lipitor and those types of things, uh, um, basically – there's sort of this association between statins and possibly reducing the severity of COVID if you were to acquire the virus. And there was an article that was recently published in, I think it was the uh, uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And they ended up basically finding that people had less severe reactions to the virus if they were on like a long-term statin. That doesn't mean everyone should go out and get a statin necessarily, but their thoughts were the evidence seems to be pointing that way. It was a meta-analysis, which means they combine lots of studies together. And they say that there's some evidence to support that maybe this could be um, one way of uh, looking at preventing severe reactions in the future. So it's just an interesting thought when we kind of look at this virus. All right. And then let's um, let's talk a little bit about mental health. I'm going to, in the next hour, I'm going to I'm going to cover this um, more thoroughly with um, with Dr. Linda Mental, but the mental health uh, I, I, we're in a crisis. I mean, I think that that is very fair to say. Um, what are you maybe most concerned about when we talk about COVID nineteen and mental health? So the CDC ended up uh, conducting a survey of Americans. I think it was about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And they ended up finding that about 40% of people who did complete the survey reported that they were experiencing anxiety, depression um, related to this whole pandemic and some of the other events of 2020 we've seen over the last several months. Um, 11% of all respondents indicated they had some thought of suicidal ideation, meaning they were thinking about suicide at one point. So, so that was a big concern that the CDC noted related to all these things. But really what it does is it underscores how much stress this pandemic has put on us, um, being locked inside, not being able to conduct our lives as normal. And then the other thing they also say is this constant media blast of all these different problems related to the pandemic. Um, so so that that's, I think, a big concern for me. And I know the people that were most affected based on the survey typically were those frontline workers. Um, and and I, I would say that that's definitely the case. I've heard stories out of New York and uh, I've heard stories out of 
uh, other places that have been hit pretty hard about how their workers have really felt in response to the virus. So when you, as a person on the front line there in Ohio, um, when you look toward the next several weeks and even the next few months, um, generally optimistic in terms of the trend line, generally pessimistic, um, what, you know, you have your finger on the pulse of reality in ways that we don't. I mean, I, I will admit to you, it's hard to it's hard to get my head and heart around the numbers. Um, it's hard to know which numbers to trust. It's hard to know what to expect. So I'd say that I'm optimistic in the sense that I know the end of the story already. And mm, uh, I think that's important to, to kind of keep us in perspective. But then the other thing I would add is – you know, if, I, if I'm looking at what I have in front of me and we take each day one step at a time, I've been saying this for months now. The big question I have is what the, this flu season is going to be like. Last year it was a very mild flu season and it was out of sync with COVID. And so kind of what I'm curious about is what happens if we have both of these on top of each other. If, if we are fortunate, it won't be that bad of a flu season and we'll be continuing to treat COVID patients better, which we've been doing. And that's a positive thing. Uh, but we just kind of have to see. It's a little too far out to say what that looks like for sure. All right. So here's a surprise headline. Neither of us knew this was coming because I'm just now reading it. Um, apparently, there is a mutated version of COVID-19 now been identified in Malaysia that apparently um, came out of Europe. Talk with us, I, obviously not specifically about this, talk with us about how a virus mutates and what that means as we look, um, I mean, that's why we have a different flu vaccine every year, because that coronavirus changes. This one is changing, too. Yeah. So, so when we talk about mutation, um, really what it comes down to is as each generation of a virus is made, there are sometimes kind of like genetic variants that look a little bit different that, that, that you wouldn't expect. So if you think about like a family who typically has... Uh, brown-eyed, um, brown-haired children, and all of a sudden they have a redhead with freckles. That's not to say that all redheaders are, have that with freckles are mutants. I'm a redhead with freckles, but you get my <laughs> point. Um, it, it's it means that uh, it's sort of like that that deviation from what you would expect. And when we talk about that with the virus and how many permutations you have, since it does produce so rapidly, um, you get these variants that basically don't operate quite the same way. So your body doesn't necessarily have immunity to them. And when we think about a, a, a vaccination, that becomes one of our challenges there. Um, so they try to catch as many as they can, and we hope we catch as many as they can. But sometimes it's more challenging. And that's why we have a yearly flu shot, because that changes so rapidly. Exactly. All right, Dr. Zach, we got to leave it right there today. But um, I expect there'll be more to talk about next week. So thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. Have a good one. You too. You guys can follow Zach on Twitter at FarmDHiker. We'll be right back. Okay. Before I uh, tell you that Joe Battaglia, uh, author of Make America Good Again, is coming up next, I have to tell you a really quick story about a place called Vernal or Vernal. I think it's Vernal, Utah. 
and the Postal Service. There's going to be lots of conversations about the Postal Service in the coming days and weeks. And so you need a story. You need a Postal Service story that you can tell in the conversations of the day. In, in 1913, the Postal Service changed the amount of weight that it would carry for the uh, requisite 54 cents. So for 54 cents, instead of being able to ship what started out as four pounds and then in 1913 uh, became 11 pounds and then 20 pounds and then 50 pounds in 1914 and then 70 pounds. So this is the explosion of Sears Roebuck, right? Because all of a sudden you could ship more uh, larger weightier things for less. Okay, so that's that's what's going on here in this conversation. So we're talking about 1914, and we're talking about Vernal, uh, Utah. A banker decides he is going to build a bank of bricks that he is going to have mailed to himself because he can mail himself 50 pounds of bricks for 54 cents. And so uh, the, the, the U.S. Postal Service calculated shipping fees as the crow flies, not based on the fact that Vernal, um, in order to get there, you had to travel 400 miles instead of the 150 miles that a crow would fly, that you would need to uh, change railroads twice, and then you would have to use horse-drawn wagons. All right, they didn't calculate any of that in. If you want to know why the Postal Service might be in some economic trouble, it might be because of things like this. Well, anyway, the bank stands today. If you want to go see the bank uh, building, um, finished in 1920 by, uh, it's called Zion's Bank today, um, but still there is a sign there that says uh, the, uh, uh, let's see, the postal, the, the bank built by bricks sent through the mail. There you go. All right, so you, uh, you have a little postal service story that you can tell today. Uh, next up, Joe Battaglia, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite guys. His latest book, Make America Good Again, 12.5 Biblical Principles to Unite Our Nation, Restore True Greatness, and Reshape Our Political Rhetoric. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When it comes to giving kids the freedom to make their own choices, are you afraid your children will make mistakes? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Let me ease your mind. Your kids will mess up. There's no doubt about it. But here's the good thing. It'll give you plenty to talk about. Use their mistakes as an opportunity to help them make better decisions in the future. Let the foolish decision be useful. When your son or daughter blows it, this is your chance to value them and love them even through the pain of their mistakes. Don't shame your kids or rescue them from consequences. Do you think your kids aren't ready to make their own choice? Of course they're not. That your teen's mistakes can be excellent teachers. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. One guy is that you could either blame or thank for my being on the radio. That would be Joe Battaglia. Joe is uh, the president of Renaissance Communication. He specializes in providing media platforms. He's also the author of The Politically Incorrect Jesus, That's My Dad. And he's here today to talk about his latest release, 
Make America Good Again. Joe Battaglia, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, Carmen, very nice to talk with you as always, and I will accept blame or kudos for you. Yeah, do you, do you feel like when you met me in that buffet line uh, that, uh, that, you know, this, that, that I'd be on the radio and then, you know, come to find out I wouldn't be half bad at this. Come to find out you've been very good at this. And so uh, one of those providential things that God surprises us with. So here you are. Totally. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm thrilled about your new book. Um, I think that the most intriguing part of the title is the point five. So thank you for putting something really intriguing right there out there for us. So the book is Make America Good Again, 12.5 Biblical Principles to Unite Our Nation, Restore True Greatness, and Reshape Our Political Rhetoric. Um, let's start with the uh, the point five. What's the secret sauce that makes it all work? <laughs> well, I did point five only to have a little fun with it. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so basically when we talk about uh, what I talk about in the, in the point five uh, portion of that, the the secret sauce. The secret sauce is always the thing that I think really, you know, stirs it up and, and makes it kind of fun. Um, well, it's the, as I say, and I use that quote from the Tocqueville to start the chapter, is that nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. And so what would make America really good again is that we understand the moral freedom uh, upon which um, this great nation is founded. Uh, it has <clears throat> the ability to uh, see things beyond what other nations saw. Um, and it's all because of the biblical frame of reference through which you see it. And so our greatness and the genius of our nation is that we are all uh, different yet one, not that we're all the same and one, and that we have the ability in this plurality to come together under this framework that we call freedom and make it work. And so, but that's based in moral freedom in the sense that we have an ability to um, uh, live a life that is based upon a, <clears throat> a true North Star, who is Jesus, and he gives us the freedom, uh, not the state, not our government, but the freedom is intrinsic to the DNA of America. And so I talk about that um, and what is great about our uh, nation, um, you know, in a lot of other different parts of the book. But, um, you know, we, we really can't cower uh, to the forces in our nation that ask us to just give up everything our, and our freedoms um, and our heritage and the things that did make America what it, what it has become as a light to the world, despite the problems that we've had through the years, like every other nation. So I try to un help people understand that um, we really need to get back or regain our sense of this moral freedom that we have um, based upon Scripture and the um, the genius of our nation. So, I mean, I can go on and on and on. Right. But, so let's you know, pause we, there, though. Uh, yeah. Because I think that um, uh, there is a conversation that you are lifting up, that you are, you know, you're drawing the curtain back on a conversation about freedom that needs to take place sort of 
what is the nature of freedom and how do I live it in a way um, that is rightly expressed? Because even, you know, as you've as you've noted this week on Twitter, the rise in violence that we're seeing, you know, that is an expression of freedom, but it is a it is an expression of freedom in the wrong direction. Um, I want to talk about um, the reality that we have very different proposals or visions being cast for the future of the country. And yet we're going to hear um, people casting those visions over the next couple of weeks, the DNC this week, the RNC next week. But you're going to hear them using similar language. And I think that part of what you do in this book is you help me understand the words rightly. And so if I read in Proverbs 1434 that righteousness exalts a nation, and if I read, uh, you know, e pluribus unum, um, in, you know, as a uh, as a recognition of what America is at its at its core, at its foundational level, what are we talking about or what should we be talking about? Because people are going to use language in the next couple of weeks about these expressed things, what it means for for this nation to be, quote unquote, righteous or soulish. And we're going to hear uh, we're certainly going to hear e pluribus unum um, translated in a couple of different ways. Talk about that. Sure. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, if you're going to listen in the next two weeks, particularly, you're going to hear everybody saying very nice things as if nothing that is happening around us. Um, And so I think the way I look at it is this, and this is a way I, I think that's helpful for us to look at it. I want to hear words that embody what is happening in the country in the spirit in which it's happening. And so what I mean by that is simply that we have to be careful um, that the spirit we bring into any situation is the same spirit which is received at the other end by the person consuming it. And so what I mean by that is if you're talking to me about what is right uh, or if if you're dealing with issues like racism or tolerance or diversity or something like that. And the spirit that comes across is anger and fear and anxiety. Um, That is something that you really have to be careful with because everything is couched and cloaked in such nice words, you know, socialism and Marxism, you know, they're not going to talk about what happens when that is unleashed in a country. So they're not going to talk about the things that are so plainly obvious that when you walk away, you say, what are you talking about? So I think you have to understand the spirit. Number one, Uh, do you sense a spirit of peace, of calm um, when people talk? Or do you sense a spirit of anxiety or frustration or angst? Um, What are you sensing when, uh, you know, these these types of discussions are had? And then back it up against where do you see it exhibited in the world today? And so uh, I think that's one way that we, in a sense, test what's going on out there. When we when we say, you know, the e pluribus unum or the from the many one, um, what happens when you get a number of people becoming one? What do you find? What has been the way our nation has worked together? What you have is an appreciation of differences. You have an appreciation of a conversation where I don't have to feel intimidated or I have to win. 
um, but I can be civil in the way in which I conduct that. If all that turns into something outside of appreciation um, and you begin to um, struggle with the hate and the violence and the um, um, and the disingenuous rants from people uh, about why, you know, um, I have to put up with their tolerance, but I, they can't put up with mine. Uh, then you're going to begin to see what the spirit is, is about. And so if you want to discuss, you know, moral law in the public square and your moral law is the only one that, you know, you can talk about, um, then there's a problem there. Um, if you're going to talk about political correctness, if you want to see the spirit that that takes over when that happens in a country, what you can simply look at, are we becoming more divided or are we becoming more together? And so what we see in our public square today is division and disorder and in God's economy, in his kingdom in his rule of law, there is no disorder. There is no divisiveness. Unity brings people together. It doesn't divide them. What we see is division. So what is the spirit out there that is contributing to this problem today? And it's not the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And so <clears throat> it's pretty simple, you know, to see that what we have going on around us, when it divides us, that's the wrong spirit. That's not e pluribusunum. And and I think both sides of that aisle have to look at it, you know, whether it's the DNC or the RNC. Uh, you know, Jesus brought people together, um, his disciples, but he also said things that um, did not separate people. People made their own decisions to go their own way. Mm -hmm. So, again, my my North Star is always who Christ is. What is the spirit that he wants us to work in? And why does that um, e pluribusum work in our country or has worked? Um, and so watch the us versus them mentality. That is the spirit of what is going on in our country today. The idea is to create these artificial rifts and paranoia between groups, right? It's white right. against black. It's rich against poor. There always has to be a bad guy. Um, and right. so that's that's what we're seeing. And that's dangerous. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. Um, that point up next. I am talking with Joe Battaglia. His latest uh, contribution to the conversation, Make America Good Again, 12.5 Biblical Principles to Unite Our Nation, Restore True Greatness and Reshape Our Political Rhetoric. More to come. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Joe Battaglia, um, we are talking today about his new release, Make America Good Again. I'll describe it as a conversation at the intersection of religion, morality, faith, national identity, um, and what really makes a nation great, which is that which makes her good, um, which leads us to a conversation about intrinsic goodness. Uh, Proverbs 14.34 might be the... Um, Highlighted verse, righteousness exalts a nation. There are chapters in here about finding 
common good despite our differences, a conversation about tolerance, um, and all kinds of conversations in here in terms of biblical principles b- brought to bear on some pretty hot button issues. Um, but I want to um, I want to talk, Joe, in the few minutes we have left about about culture war and then forgiveness as the answer to the culture war, because that is really, I think, the pinnacle of the conversation here. Uh, yes. Well, <clears throat> you know, everybody knows that there's a culture war out there and it means so many different things to so many different people. Um Basically, you know, we understand that the kind of culture that we as believers acknowledge to be uh, very important for a nation and the, the corporate body and the individual person <clears throat> to believe in because it really makes for civility. It, it should. Let's leave. Let's put it that way. It, it should make uh, for um, appreciation of our differences. Uh, it should make for finding common ground with people. It should make for the intersection of people unlike us uh, and the idea that that's important and we need to appreciate that. Um, And yet, because there are so many things that are going on that are so antithetical to what we believe in, um, we've engaged in this culture war, as I call it. Um, And whenever you have a war, you have to have an enemy. And Jesus said that there's only one real enemy. And I think we all know who that is. And so uh, the 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 need to uh, understand that who the real enemy is, it is not someone who disagrees with me or, you know, somebody from another party. Um, And so we have to watch how we engage in that war. Uh, Do we bring a spirit of meanness? Do we bring uh, do we actually think that that's the real enemy? Uh, And so uh, I, I think what makes us good is that we're able to understand who the real enemy is, know that his work is to uh, counterfeit everything that is good from God. And whenever we see God's goodness in the world, we have to expect that there is going to be some um, entity, some force, we believe it is Satan, the enemy himself, who will then counterfeit that and give us, you know, something other than that to fight against. And so, Uh, You know, the need to understand how I feel in my heart towards somebody and uh, how I am going to express the forgiveness that God asks me to have for people who do things to me, say things to me. Um, You know, what we see is a lot of bitterness out there, right? There's, There's so much hate and violence and disorder rather than order. So it's easy you know, to become um, disenchanted with what's going on and then have an anger toward the culture or these people, whoever these people are that are, you know, doing this to me. Uh, And so I try to help people understand that the first objective as a Christian is to help each other become better humans, not become better political allies. So I take it beyond... uh, public policy and the political situation. And as I always like to say, whenever you raise the flag higher than the cross, you have a problem. And so my job as an ambassador, as the Apostle Paul calls us, right? And the great thing about an ambassador is that he's not sent to fix the country he's in. He is sent to represent the country he's from. Mm -hmm. That helps me 
understand that my job is to be more Christ-like and to represent who Christ is. And when I lift him up and the cross, people will be drawn to him. The Holy Spirit will then work in their hearts and that will create more change than all my, you know, verbal grenades that I toss <laughs> um, Absolutely. while I, while I sit in my trench. So I just ask people to be cognizant of, of who we are as Christians, uh, as Christ followers, and how we answer people and respond to people. And forgiveness is a very strong, very strong principle. And I, and I use an example in my book about how Nelson Mandela used forgiveness after being released from his prison after all those years um, to where he could have come out of prison um, and uh, incited people to riot and destroy uh, South Africa. And yet he said, we need to forgive, which is so different than what you're hearing today. Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. you know, and so uh, and, and Jesus himself is very aware of and, and helps us understand that forgiveness is not in uh, is in God's DNA. I think that's so obvious because he sent his son for us and forgave us. Right. Because of that. And so we have to understand that when we judge we then usurp the prerogative of God. And God does not like people to take on the responsibilities that are, that are his alone. And so um, we, can, uh, we need to fight this uh, spirit of anger and bitterness um, that is uh, you know, taking over the land. And the way we can fight it is with forgiveness. And I think that's a, a word to... to uh, a lot who are trying to work through the issue of racism uh, and how we feel about that ourselves uh, and how it could be uh, mitigated in this country. Uh, and so there's there's a lot that happens uh, when we retain the goodness yep. Absolutely. that God has has asked us to become. Uh, and those are some of the things I talk about in the culture war. All right, Joe, you and I got to leave it right there. Joe Battaglia is the author. Make America Good Again is the book. Uh, I will sum it up this way. It is an an exercise in reorienting ourselves uh, toward uh, toward the compass of God and God's truth. All right, that's all we've got for the first hour this morning of Mornings with Carmen. Stay with me for hour two. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.